country has strayed too far from God. Others fear that zealots, from the White House to the school board, are waging holy war on American liberty, and many, if not most, seem to think that we are a nation hopelessly divided by religion. None of these dire views is quite right. The great good news about America, the American gospel, if you will, is that religion shapes the life of the nation without strangling it. Belief in God is central to the country's experience, yet for the broad center, faith is a matter of choice, not coercion. And the legacy of the founding is that the sensible center holds. It does so because the founders believed themselves at work in the service of both God and man, not just one or the other. Driven by a sense of providence and an acute appreciation of the fallibility of humankind, they created a nation in which religion should not be singled out for special help or particular harm. The balance between the promise of the Declaration of Independence, with its evocation of divine origins and destiny, and the practicalities of the Constitution, with its checks on extremism, remains perhaps the most brilliant American success. This victory over excessive religious influence and excessive secularism is often lost in the clatter of contemporary culture and political strife. Looking back to the founding is neither an exercise in nostalgia nor an attempt to deify the dead, but a bracing lesson in how to make a diverse nation survive and thrive by cherishing freedom and protecting faith. And faith and freedom are inextricably linked. It is not for priests or pastors or presidents or kings to compel belief, or to do so trespasses on each individual's God-given liberty of mind and heart. If the Lord himself chose not to force obedience from those he created, then who are men to try? There is a vast and growing literature about the Founding Fathers, much of it quite wonderful, and a stream of strong scholarship about the problem of church and state. Yet because faith is such an emotional subject for both believers and non-believers, discussion of the question of religion and public life can often be more divisive than illuminating. Secularists reflexively point to the Jeffersonian wall of separation between church and state, as though the conversation should end there. Many conservative Christians defend their forays into the political arena by citing the founders, as though Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Franklin were cheerful Christian soldiers. The real saga of God, the founding fathers, and the making of the nation— is a tale that opens with swashbuckling Virginia adventurers searching for gold in Virginia and sturdy but strict Puritans trying to create a Christian commonwealth in New England. The drama is America's drama, from George Washington to Ronald Reagan, from the Civil War to civil rights. The story of how the founders believed in faith and freedom and grappled with faith and freedom has a particular resonance for our era. Given the world in which they lived— a time of divisive arguments about God and politics, the founders repay close attention. For their time is like our time, and they found a way to honor religion's place in the life of the nation while giving people the freedom to believe as they wish, and not merely to tolerate someone else's, but to respect it. America's early years were neither a golden age of religion nor a glowing hour of enlightenment reason. Life was shaped by evangelical fervor, and ambitious clergy, anxious politicians, and determined secularists. Some Christians wanted to impose their beliefs on the rest of the country. Other equally committed believers thought faith should steer clear of public life. In the fulcrum stood the brilliant but fallible political leadership of the new nation. 
The Founding Fathers struggled to assign religion its proper place in civil society, and they succeeded. Our best chance of summoning what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature may lie in recovering the sense and spirit of the Founding Era and its leaders, for they emerged from a time of trial with an understanding of religion and politics that, while imperfect, averted the worst experiences of other nations. In that history lies our hope. In one of the last letters of his life, written, his doctor said, with all the striking characteristics of his vigorous and unfaded intellect, Jefferson spoke of America's hard-won freedom from monarchs who used church and state to reign over others, acting as though only kings could draw strength and standing from God. All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man, he wrote on Saturday, June 24, 1826. The general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. For the Founding Fathers, God's grace was universal. In his first draft of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson linked fundamental founding American ideals, that freedom is the gift of nature's God, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with inherent and inalienable rights, to a religious vision of the world that had roots both in classical philosophy and in Holy Scripture. From antiquity, he drew on Aristotle and Cicero. From what was called Christendom, he owed much to John Locke, author of a book called The Reasonableness of Christianity, Algernon Sidney, Joseph Priestley, and Lord Bolingbroke, all Enlightenment thinkers. To Jefferson, the Creator invested the individual with rights no human power should ever take away. What separated us from the old world was the idea that books, education, and the liberty to think and worship as we wished would create virtuous citizens who cherished and defended reason, faith, and freedom. In our finest hours, we have been neither wholly religious nor wholly secular, but have drawn on both traditions. The founders were politicians and philosophers, sages and warriors, churchmen and doubters. They knew history and literature, politics and philosophy, theology and business, statecraft and soldiering. They could be vain yet selfless, short-sighted yet shrewd and far-seeing, temperamental yet forbearing, bigoted yet magnanimous. They delved and dabbled in religion. While Jefferson edited the Gospels, Benjamin Franklin rephrased and rearranged the Book of Common Prayer. Franklin may have rendered the Lord's Prayer into the 18th century vernacular, but his piety had its limits. On his first day in Philadelphia as a young man, Franklin recalled falling sound asleep in a Quaker meeting house. Many of the founders were influenced by deism, an Enlightenment vision of religion which held that there was a single creator God. Some deists, including Jefferson and Franklin, believed this God worked in the world through providence. For them, Jesus of Nazareth was a great moral teacher, even the greatest in all history, but he was not the Son of God. The Holy Trinity was seen as an invention of a corrupt church more interested in temporal power than in true religion. The mind of man, not the mysteries of the church, was the center of faith. When Thomas Paine wrote The Age of Reason, a tract attacking traditional Christianity, an American statesman, Elias Boudinot, sat down and whipped out a reply. Its title? the age of revelation. John Adams considered the ministry, but chose law instead. 
For the rest of his life he was a Unitarian who privately confessed a weakness for the beauty of Episcopal liturgy. In an intensely anti-Catholic age, Franklin helped advance the career of John Carroll of Maryland, the priest who became the first American to be made a bishop in the Catholic Church. As the light faded in the summer of 1826, Jefferson, now 83, read Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and the Bible. During his final days, Jefferson said to his physician, A few hours more, doctor, and it will be all over. On the night of July 3rd, Jefferson took his medicine for the last time, saying, Oh, God, with what one observer thought was a tone of impatience. Pressed again later to take something, Jefferson declined. No, nothing more. At one point, his imagination drifted, and he gestured as though he were once again writing on his small desk. Moving in his mind between past and present, he gave his grandson instructions about his funeral arrangements. Struggling to be reassuring, a member of the family said that everyone hoped it would be a long time before those orders would have to be executed. With a smile, Jefferson replied, Do you imagine I fear to die? He had long contemplated what he was to face on the other side of the grave, and he found the prospect bright. Once we left our sorrows and suffering bodies, Jefferson had once told John Adams, then they would ascend in essence to an ecstatic meeting with the friends we have loved and lost and whom we shall still love and never lose again. He was thinking of his beloved wife and a child who had died before him, and he had written a short poem to his living daughter, saying that as he went to his father's, the last pang of life is in parting from you. Yet, two seraphs await me, long shrouded in death, Jefferson said, and I will bear them your love on my last parting breath. He seems to have